0: Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I'm your host, Andreas Casay. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring the groundbreaking journeys of Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color, psychiatric, and mental health nurses, in their quest to meet the urgent and unmet needs of minority communities in America. We are so excited to talk to today's guest, so let's get started. Dr. Bronner, welcome, and thank you for being our guest on this inaugural episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. So I'd like us to begin with an introduction, if you could please introduce yourself.
1: Sure. And first, I want to say thank you so much for having me. I'm excited that we'll be doing these episodes uh, and really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have today. So my name is Dr. Bridget Bronner. I am currently an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and also chair of the National Advisory Committee for the Minority Fellowship Program. And again, just really excited to get into what we're going to talk about today and hoping that the content will be helpful for our fellows, our alumni, and any others who get a chance to listen to it.
0: I'm sure it will be and let me start with uh, your journey your trajectory as a nurse and if you could take us back for a moment to when you first realized that you wanted to be a nurse what set you on course and what led you to focus on psychiatric nursing.
1: Yeah, so what's interesting, that goes all the way back to me being about three or four years old. Um, I always had a desire to help people, you know, and like a lot of other children, I had the little, stethoscope and the kit, and my mom would let me do science experiments, you know, but she would actually let me prick her finger to draw blood and look at it under the microscope. So I always had this interest in sort of the human body and helping people. Um, And I have an aunt, actually, who passed the beginning of this year, unfortunately, due Due to COVID complications, but she was a nurse. And so getting to go into the hospital with her, you know, and um, at one point she was doing telehealth, you know, in the early nineties and uh, working with a company that at that time was called Ask a Nurse. So having nursing sort of, you know, around me and that desire to help infused in me. And as I got older, I actually was considering a path to be a physician. And so when I was in high school, I was um, a Macy's scholar and I also did a program down at Georgetown University for students who were interested in careers in medicine And then took some opportunities to do some shadowing. But what really sort of shifted me from medicine back to nursing was some conversations that I was having with my aunt. But then in the shadow experience, I had gone to a neonatal intensive care unit. I was very drawn to like babies, you know, and helping families whose infants who were either born prematurely or, you know, they got them home and had different issues. And on the unit, and this, you know, I want to be very clear, this is not a dig to physicians because we're all needed, right? And we all have our... Role. But as a high school student, when I did that shadow experience, watching the amount of time that the nurses got to spend, you know, with the patients and watching them doing the education with the families and having to so critically think through the orders that were in, you know, and titrating the medications and doing the assessments. Whereas the neonatologist that I was shadowing, you know, as that level on a unit, they're covering multiple babies. Whereas the nurse, they may have, you know, one to three. So the nurses were able to to have uh, more hands-on involvement in the care. And it's just the nature of how we practice. So again, not making one better than the other, but that was where the light bulb really went off where I said, ah, you know what? It's nursing for me because I want that hands-on care. I want that, you know, direct more time with the one-on-one experiences. And then again, being able to support families in such a critical time in the lives of their newborns.
0: And how did you find the profession? I mean, how was it... Going to school, uh, especially as an African-American woman, was it what you expected? And then on to your career, like what were some Mm -hmm. of the challenges? Did you ever regret it?
1: (laughs) Definitely no regrets with nursing. So I feel like if someone listens to this and they are not yet in nursing, get a nursing degree, right? Like you, you can literally do anything with a nursing degree. I have met nurse architects. I have met nurse attorneys, you know, you can go into nursing research, you can practice at the bedside, you can hang your own shingles, you know, as a psych mental health provider. So this is definitely a career decision that I, I do not regret. It's given me flexibility to cover a lot of ground. And as a nursing student, you know, doing my undergrad all the way through graduate, as well as the times that I've worked in high schools and on nursing units, you know, it's all been very fulfilling.
0: Could you tell me why you decided to focus on psychiatric and mental health nursing in particular?
1: So when I was an undergraduate, I actually hated psych mental health and I hated research. Um, And I think it was because, and it wasn't my professors, you know, they were amazing. And they would even say to me, like, you're great at this. You should consider, you know, this moving forward. But I, at that time, was so singularly focused on NICU. Like, all I knew was that I wanted to be a NICU nurse. um, And I had planned to do that and retire from that career, But it was when I had an opportunity to see the importance, right, how mental health is really infused throughout every area of life, from our relationships with significant others and our families, what was happening in the NICU. I was seeing moms experiencing postpartum depression. I was seeing, you know, families struggling with their communication dynamics when the babies were really sick, seeing teenagers, which was what launched me even more so into HIV and STIs, but like teen, you know, families who had and two and three-year-olds in the waiting room, but a baby in the NICU. So that got me interested in the psychology of sex, Uh, but really recognizing that mental health and substance use really are infused through so many areas of life. Um, And so that's what got me to go back for my master's in psychiatric mental health for clinical nurse specialists. And then while I was doing that, the experience that I had uh, counseling young people at a high school in Philly got me more interested in the ways that depression, anxiety, ADHD, you know, different mental health concerns was shaping the decisions that they were making about sex and relationships. And so I think, you know, it motivates me now even more to work with our nurse practitioners and our PhD and our DNP fellows because mental health and substance use are really like anchors in so many things, right? Like they're anchors in how well you manage diabetes. They're anchors in how you cope with the COVID-19 pandemic. They're anchors in whether or not you can take your medications if you're HIV positive or the behaviors that you engage in, you know, if you're negative. And so I think that became that common thread for me and gave me that passion to work in this area. I will say though, being a African American nurse, and then also now like on the faculty side, being younger, it does come with its challenges, right? Like you have to have Thick skin in many different ways. And I think a lot of people, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome, where you're in a space and you feel like you don't belong. And I think when you begin to add those intersections of race, of ethnicity, of gender, you know, of social class and social position, all of those things sort of amplify the sense that you have that you don't belong. And when you're in, you know, most of my training has been in predominantly white spaces. When you're in those spaces, representation matters, you know, so when you look around and you're seeing either no individuals that look like you or very few, it feeds that part of you that says, maybe I'm really not. You know, supposed to be here. But one of the things that has been such a blessing for me over the course of my life is I have always had individuals from a variety of different backgrounds, right? Uh, sexual identity, gender identity, race, ethnicity—like people who just have seen something in me and chosen to support, chosen to encourage, chosen to leverage the resources that they've had, right? So more than mentorship, but really sponsorship to open doors for me and to create opportunities for me. And and what I want to put a Pin in here, not doing that because I was black, right? Because then you have people who say, Oh, she got this because she's black, or you know, she was able to do this because she's black. No, I'm actually quite amazing, you know, to say that in a very humble way, but I've been blessed to accomplish a lot in a very short amount of time, but I haven't done it on my own. I was able to do it because I'll think through some examples of um, white women in particular, let's say, right, who used the power and the the expertise and the resources that they had in spaces where people who looked like me were not welcomed, right, to say we want this level of representation at the table. Or the people who do look like me, right, I'm thinking about Dr. Loretta Sweet-Jamad and Dr. Chris Coleman um, and Dr. Frida Outlaw, right, like all of these people who blazed trails ahead of me And then held the door open so that people who looked like me could come behind them. So I think uh, in the nursing profession, you know, there's ways where all all throughout the trajectory we can feel like we don't belong. And not only feel it, it's very real. Be made to think we don't belong because that's a narrative as well, right, where there are people, uh, even though nursing is a quote unquote trusted profession, there are people who don't want it to look, you know, diverse in many different ways, but to have those individuals who are committed to it, you know, and making the efforts to bring about diversity and to make sure that all individuals, right, have an opportunity to be a part of our amazing profession, I think has been just instrumental to my um, growth and development, but then also me getting to where I am today.
0: You mentioned Dr. Outlaw and Dr. Chris Coleman. These are all... um, alumni of the minority fellowship program yeah so how how important was being a fellow in your journey i guess you mentioned some of it but beyond that being a member of the mfp how has that molded the dr Bronner that we are talking to now
1: yeah. And I say this without the bias of being the current NAC chair, right? Um, but I <laughs> I wholeheartedly say like, I literally wouldn't be where I am today without this program. And that's, you know, it's not an, an understatement or an overstatement. It's just the the facts of what it is. So this network is unlike anything else that I have ever experienced. And when we talk about it, you know, when I was in the program and now with the current fellows, it really becomes a family and a home. So even if you're at at, you know, an HBCU or Hispanic-serving institution and you have people who look like you, but it's just different to have an an academic intellectual community apart from your institution, right, who can advise you in career, who can mentor you in, you know, your long-term trajectory and what you want to do, who can help you think through some of the challenges that you go through, you know, as you're training in these different programs. So it was really instrumental in not only giving me sort of like a home outside of where I was doing my training. But then the network that we have, this vast, like we are the leading network of behavioral health providers from racial and ethnic minority backgrounds, right? When we're talking about nurses, but we also know that the MFP is in other areas, medicine, psychology. So this network um, of our behavioral health workforce is unprecedented. So to go to a session and be able to, you know, sit across from Dr. Grant, the president of the American Nurses Association, or, you know, you travel and you're in another state, you know, you're somewhere else in the country and you're meeting the heads of, you know, departments of mental health or you're meeting the CEOs of different hospitals. So there are ways where it just uh, resourced us and gave us connections and access to, you know, people in spaces that we may not have otherwise had. And I even think back, Dr. Pat Bradley is also an alumna of the program and she was one of my professors at Villanova, one of very few, I think we only had two Black faculty at Villanova at the time. And it's even more of a treasured moment for me now because she was my professor then and I'll announce here since it's been made public I'm actually transitioning to Villanova to be a full-time professor a full professor at the institution and in January we'll have an endowed chair but to have you know individuals where not only while you're in the program you're being mentored and connected but then these long-term relationships that we build and sort of circle back to I think is amazing so it's our own little you know not secret society because it's open to other individuals, but it feels like that because you have that that deep, intimate connection to people that you might not get in some of the other large national programs.
0: Oh, well, congratulations on the new appointment! That's Thank great you. news. But you touch on something that I think uh, I'd like to dig a little bit further into. You, sure. This is a a pretty exclusive group. I mean, you have to be, of course, selected, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a rigorous uh, application process. Uh, meanwhile, there are probably many, many, many other potential people, students uh, going through the master's programs or DMP programs or PhD programs who would love to have that kind of mentorship or that kind of family space where they feel comfortable. I mean, what advice do you have for them, uh, for those who are not in the MFP and who are feeling these challenges because of, you know, who they are and not having somebody who looks like them in their program and might be feeling that uh, discomfort? What is your advice for them?
1: So I have several areas. Uh, First, I'll do a shameless plug to say apply, right? Apply to the MFP program because it really is, you you will not experience anything else like this particular program. And I want to encourage those. If you've applied before um, and were not accepted and you're still in your programs, apply again and you can reach out to us. We'll provide technical support in the application process. And then thinking through our different racial and ethnic minority organizations. So um, Nana Aina, Nana, NBNA, you know, um, and Simna. there's so many ways where from that diversity perspective, we can be connected to organizations. And then I would say I'm a strong believer since we're talking about trailblazing, blaze the trail. You know, a lot of my life came because I was encouraged to not just wait for things to happen or not just wait, you know, for a seat. There are people say like, you know, pulled up your folding chair, if they're not giving you a seat at the table. And then some also say, make your own table. So if you are longing for, you know, that type of connection and support to other individuals, reach out to people at your school. And if you don't feel that they exist at your school, reach out to individuals, you know, at other universities. I think now with technology, we have so much access right at our fingertips. So it could be as simple as, you know, let's say if there's someone who is in a master's program and they want to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner or they're considering applying, you know, looking at some different schools and reaching out to the students that are going there, to the faculty and trying to put something together yourself is an opportunity also.
0: I think those are great suggestions. And uh, yeah, we look forward to spreading the message further as well. Especially now, uh, when you consider where we are today and where we've been, the journey, the passage that we've been through these past two years, uh, with all the politics, uh, the pandemic, mm-hmm. social, ethnic injustice, it's been a time when health disparities, I mean, including uh, disparities in service providers, have been put under the spotlight. You know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color have mm-hmm. died in disproportionate numbers. You've been grappling with these issues long before COVID-19 put the media spotlight on them. And as you're observing this space, what is your present take on the discussions that are going on and, and tangible changes that are happening? Are health disparities being addressed in a meaningful way?
1: Yeah, this one is a topic near and dear to my heart. And I'll try not to do a 90-minute a soapbox, which I can very easily do. I think for those of us who have been in this uh, health equity fight for a while, the overall sentiment has been frustration. You know, if I can just be candid and honest for a moment. So, And especially those of us who live, right, health inequities, um, there are people who are just now waking up to things that we have not had the luxury of ignoring our entire lifetimes. You know, we come into the world where people's mothers, they never get to meet them because their mom died in childbirth. Or we live in communities where, you know, I think about myself, my asthma as a child was absolutely horrible. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, shout out to my fellow New Yorkers. Um, and this is not a dig to Brooklyn, but the environmental conditions in certain you know areas, cities, predisposes children to health issues that other kids don't have so my mom as a single mom was having to at two three four o'clock in the morning you know rush me to King's County Hospital because my my lungs are closing up and I can't breathe right so we have had these inequities right they're they're more than disparities because disparities are differences these unfair unjust differences that don't have to be there they've existed for centuries you know we're not just talking about something that's been the past couple of decades and so now Now, you know, with the murders last year and with COVID-19, you know, pulling the rug from things that we've tried to ignore as a country, there are people who are seeing it and saying, oh, we have to do something about this. Right. Like it's unfair. It shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be taking place. And that's great. And I, you know, I want us to do as much as we can with this momentum. But where it's frustrating is you have people who are just getting into the game who are ignoring the voices of individuals who have been shouting this from the mountaintops forever, right? Like thinking about Dr. Monica McLemore, you know, Dr. Cameron Jones, like so many individuals who have been championing these causes. And before, you know, it wasn't sexy to talk about racism. So there were people who could submit grant applications or try to teach classes or, you know, try to do things to engage the ways that race and racism will not race. Let me be clear that racism was affecting health because it's not race; it's racism. And they, you know, doors were closed in their faces because it was taboo and we didn't want to acknowledge that that was an issue. But now, you know, it's more comfortable to say social justice than racial justice. And it's more comfortable to look at it and say, hey, something is going on with health where these groups are more affected than others, but it's not new. It's something that people have been doing for a very long time. So overall sentiment, frustration, but then underneath that, I am excited because when you have a small group of individuals, right, saying that something matters and is important, they can be ignored by the masses. But I think what these past, you know, 12, 14, 16 months have done, people who were able to sort of like safety habits. a little bit of cognitive dissonance and distance themselves from what was going on it was on their television you know it was on their cell phones it was in conversations at the dinner table and so now when you have a critical mass of individuals who say hey this is happening and even if i wasn't in the fight before or you know even if i was how do we collectively come together to ensure that you know your zip code doesn't determine how long you get to live and that the color of your skin is not an indicator of the type of care that you receive, you know, when you show up to a healthcare provider or an urgent care facility. So a mix of frustration and excitement is what I would say kind of is the sentiment of where things are. But I'm a I'm an optimist, right, a hopeful, optimistic where I say, That now, with this momentum that we have, I think there's a lot of really amazing work that we can do. And so we just have to sort of dig our heels in for the marathon that's ahead.
0: And is this discussion happening within nursing, within the nursing profession? Are the nursing institutions, the training, the academies, the universities, are they confronting this issue? And also individual nurses, you know, we have this impression of, of nursing,
1: mm. of,
0: you know, being the you know, Florence Nightingale type, uh, you know, only do good, can't hurt anybody impression of nurses. But it's a little bit more nuanced, of course. And being a nurse doesn't make you immune or give you a free mm-hmm. pass. Is that discussion happening? Are nurses in general accepting that this, there is this challenge amongst themselves?
1: I love this question. And this, you know, this may turn me into a persona non grata in some spaces, but that's okay because you have to be willing to get into good trouble, right? Uh, Like our congressman said, and and be willing to ruffle some feathers. So when we think about the profession of nursing, um, it does not mirror the current population in the United States. I'll speak for the U.S. context. Um, And so nursing is comprised of predominantly white women, some of whom are very amazing and some of whom enjoy the current status quo. So like you said, being a nurse, me going to school, you know, and getting a bachelor's degree in nursing and sitting for the NCLEX and practicing and becoming faculty does not exempt me from my family of origin, does not exempt me from my own, you know, biases and other things that I bring to the table. And so racism is a very present force in nursing. Why? Because people are in nursing, (laughs) because human beings are there, you know, and they're bringing those things with them. So I think it's part of, and and I won't go down that rabbit hole because it will take a lot if we do the whole exposure of even the Florence Nightingale situation. But to say that even our, you know, highly esteemed nursing colleagues were not perfect. And had their own issues, right? And so I think where we have to be truthful with ourselves as a profession is that because we're human and because we bring those things, having this stamp of RN on my badge does not make me exempt from the atrocious things that people do and the mistreatment of others because of their skin color you know, or because of their background in other ways. So I think it's definitely an issue in nursing. What I will say, though, is we are at a space, you know, I do feel like we're almost in a revolution in many ways. So we're in a space where there are more people who are willing to acknowledge that it exists and no longer want to give lip service. So there have been organizations where it's, you know, been statements, you know, either from um, universities or national organizations or things where statements are issued. And it's kind of like this rubber stamping, you know, let's say something about it so that it's out there. And then that's, we've, we've done our due diligence because we spoke on it. But what I'm seeing now more, you know, the institutions that I'm connected with, the boards that I'm serving on, people are to a place where they're tired of talking about it. You know, even from research, they're tired of just documenting that differences are there. They want to see action. And so, they They're issuing statements, but then they're also putting their money where their mouths are because a lot of this is going to take financial resources to bring about change or they're putting, you know, human resources. They're hiring individuals who can be a part of the change that they're saying that they want to see. So there are spaces where people are working um, and doing what's necessary, you know, to bring about a difference. But as with everything else, there are people who don't want to see change or who are comfortable with just, you know, making a statement and then not putting legs to that statement.
0: And, and, you know, drilling down to like individual nurses, as you mentioned, the majority of the profession are white uh, nurses. And, you know, many of them might never have even considered or thought about potential you know, racism or the you know, issues of race in their profession. How do you engage them? You know, a nurse who has been working in the emergency room, you know, cleaning up after patients of all colors, all backgrounds, Without, you know, in a very selfless manner, how do you get them to start thinking about these issues and confronting uh, racism within the profession? How do you start those discussions?
1: Yeah, so I think first and foremost, if we just normalize the fact that none of us are perfect. You know, for an individual to be called racist or to be told that they did something that was racist, it comes across as the end of the world. But if we were to just acknowledge like, hey, a lot of us do some really crappy things, you know, we say some things that are inappropriate. We do things that have huge detrimental implications on other individuals and then just have the emotional maturity to sit in that and be okay with it and then do better moving forward. I think what happens is when there is an unwillingness to hear from someone. And I love when we think, um, especially about like implicit and explicit bias, intent doesn't matter. So, you know, I'm thinking I had an issue. I was on an elevator and um, I was at Penn. I was, I had already gotten my Ph.D. there and was doing my postdoc and a gentleman got onto the elevator and I had my son with me. He was about two or three at the time. And he says to me, you know, actually, no, he had to be my son had to maybe be one and a half because I was holding him. And he says, you know, oh, is there a free clinic here? So to see a black woman on an elevator with a small child. And at that point, I might have been about 30, 29 or 30. And so me, you know, I have a very that that New York in me comes out very, very quick, (laughs) very quick wit. Um, And so for him to say that I was instantly offended. And my response was, why do you need one? You know, because like <laughs> you're making the assumption that I need a free clinic. And I said, why do you need one? You know, and he sort of looks at me, you know, looks back at my kid. And I said, you know, I'm Dr. Bronner. I'm a postdoc here. You know, can I like help you get to where you need to go? But just that. Did he apologize? No, he did not. His pride would not let him. He was just, he, he, he almost wanted to make it like he hadn't done what he had just did, but he did. And regardless of what his intent was in asking me that, he offended me by assuming that as a Black woman with a small child on an elevator in a school of nursing at an Ivy League institution, right, that there is no other way that I would be there except me coming for a free clinic. And so- When we think about whatever the bias is that made him make that assumption, his statement still had an effect. And now imagine if I was someone who was already wrestling with the healthcare system, right? Which happens. People don't just mistrust and distrust the system for no reason. There's valid reasons why individuals don't want to come in and seek care or delay seeking care, right? And so those types of encounters, whether he was a provider or not, feed the experiences, right, and the history that individuals have. And so it's those moments like that where someone would have to be willing to say that was a racially motivated act. And even if his intent wasn't for it to be that way, that's how it was perceived. And so I think in nursing if we can acknowledge that these experiences that people are having are real because I get so sick of people who say you know oh everything isn't the race car you know everything isn't about race it is when you live in this skin and this is how people treat you so whether your intent was that or not all that matters is how I felt in this moment right and how I experienced it and so as nurses whether we're delivering care running research studies you know teaching our students managing a practice we have to be mindful of these things and know that even we ourselves can enact these same behaviors and then be willing to own it if someone calls it on it. You know what? I'm sorry. And apologize, right? Like, I'm sorry. I hear what you said, not even saying that's not what I meant. I hear what you said, and I apologize that I offended you.
0: Period. That yeah, he made that assumption. That's terrible. Yeah, that's very disrespectful. And, and people don't realize what that does to you uh, and, and the way you react and respond to the world. <laughs> Well, let's move, uh, well, maybe not beyond racism, looking back at COVID-19, and hopefully we will be looking back uh, and that we will emerge from this. But the psychiatric and mental health toll that COVID-19 has taken, it's something that will be very fascinating for researchers to look at moving forward, but it's having a very real impact on society. How was it working as a nurse during COVID-19? especially on the front lines.
1: Yeah. And so I do not have frontline nursing practice experience. So all of, you know, what I've done uh, at this moment has been through faculty and through research, but in talking to my colleagues, you know, or in as a family member with multiple relatives who I've lost to COVID, you know, who um, were diagnosed and you're afraid that the next one is going to die. You know, me myself being afraid for my own health and safety with some underlying health conditions. um, It was a lot. And I think one of the things that we've talked about consistently and where we, as an MFP, want to make sure that we are proactive with our fellows and with this vast network that we have, we as a global community have no clue the toll that this thing is going to take long term you know, from our children being behind academically because the virtual environment was, was basically impossible to learn in. And those educational inequities that were there are only going to be widened because some individuals had resources, right? To do small pods in their homes, whereas others were working two to three jobs. And so they were unaware of whether their students were logged on or not, you know. So um I think it is taking a toll in multiple ways, but in the mental health side, we really just have no clue what it is because you have the fallout of the sheer trauma right, that our healthcare providers are under. And when I say healthcare, I'm talking all the way, you know, nurses, physicians, janitors, dietary service, like to go in day in and day out and seeing individuals die, you know, to see somebody come in and they're up laughing, talking, smiling, and then less than 30 minutes later, they're no longer alive. You know, having to notify a family member that like your wife is going into labor and you can't come in and she passes in the delivery and you never get to see her again and you have to take this baby be home, you know, to raise on your own, which wasn't your plan. There's so much that's happening with this pandemic that I don't even think we're prepared to get to. In addition to, you know, just let's say for the individuals who maybe haven't had firsthand experience watching the death tolls on the news, you know, or watching what's happening where we got into this little lull where we were comfortable, you know, we had our masks, the vaccine came around, and now there's this Delta variant that, you know, for many individuals is even scarier. So I think we've really Really, um, as a behavioral health community want to make sure that we are equipped and that we are ready for the massive mental health and substance use needs that are coming. And where I get concerned, we have not had mental health parity. Right, so we are in a context where physical health is taken more seriously, and more financial resources are devoted. So that if I were to fall and God forbid break my leg, I'm gonna get what I need much sooner than if I have a friend who committed suicide related to you know losing a loved one to COVID, and now I need therapy, but there's so few behavioral health providers, right? Or there's um, limited resources for me to get the the telehealth, telemental. Health that I need. So I think it's something that we need to keep coming around the table to make sure that we're equipped because the need is here and it's only going to continue to grow exponentially the longer that we're facing this pandemic.
0: And you've just also raised another question in my mind people who care for the psychiatric and mental health needs of, of others, and what kind of person or what kind of character does that and sustains that and doesn't become impacted by what they're being confronted with, with their patients. How do you navigate that space? How do you make sure that that your own mental health, that your yeah. own uh, psychological space is healthy?
1: No, that's excellent. Every therapist needs a therapist, right? Like really, no matter, you know, whether you're engaging in this space, uh, teaching classes, doing research, you know, involved in direct patient care, you have to have a space to offload all of these things because as it affects you it's going to come out you know in one way or another and I think part of what people have to do is sort of dissociate a little bit to be able to like be in the moment and do the things that they need to do but the issue is when you never pick those things back up and so there are ways where this type of work can make you hardened where you lose your ability you know to empathize with other people because you just can't mentally physically emotionally navigate right how traumatic and how stressful all of this is but we absolutely have to attend to our own mental health because we're dealing with very heavy stuff Um, And doing it in a context, again, where we're living through a global pandemic and, you know, racial unrest and all these things are happening. So I think we all should be in therapy. I'm in therapy myself. I'll do that. Lifelong, probably. And just, you know, doing tune-ups like I do for my car, getting that periodic maintenance. But making sure that we're not trying to shoulder this on our own, but that we're getting professional help um, when we need it. And then also having those sort of peer support networks.
0: Well, one thing that you have done a lot of research on, one area, just as a transition here, is HIV and AIDS. And I've been looking at some of the statistics here in America, and it's uh, quite shocking how wide the gap is between you know, rates of infection for African-American men and women, as well as immigrants, as compared mm-hmm. to Caucasian men and women. I mean, I guess the, the why part, there's probably a very long answer to that, but briefly, mm-hmm. why is that? And then what can nurses do to bring those rates down?
1: Yeah. Oh, the why part. That's the past, you know, 20 plus years of my life looking at that why. I'll try to do the abridged version. So it comes down to inequitable access, right? to resources, services, the things that people need to reach their full health potential. And I want to be very clear, and I'm glad that we're shifting to HIV and other STIs as well in this conversation, because what we're seeing is not only individual behavior. And I think for so long, Um, with HIV, and COVID follows a very similar playbook, it's easy to vilify what people are doing, right? So you hear Mm -hmm. that someone has acquired HIV or another STI, and then the immediate thought for most people is they were risky, right? What did they do to put themselves at risk? But what gets less attention is what type of health-related resources and education are available where they live? What is the health literacy level in that community? How has, you know, mortgage redlining or disinvestment or gentrification caused the concentration of HIV to be greater in certain communities than it is in others, right? We know even when we look at behaviors among racial and ethnic minority groups, we have solid data that shows that racial and ethnic minority populations in comparison uh, to white populations in certain communities are engaging in more protective behaviors, actually. So using condoms more consistently and correctly, going to get HIV testing, right, so that they know their status, yet the rates are still so disproportionate. So if it's not what people are doing, and we also know that there's not, you know, our our black and brown skin is not inherently or genetically flawed. So there's nothing that makes me um, physiologically or biologically as a black woman more at risk for HIV than someone of another background. And so what is it, right? And then the what it is is coming down to the concentration of HIV in our networks in some ways, you know, like when you look at viral load at a community level, um, if I live in an area like DC or Philadelphia, and I'm not saying this to stigmatize these areas, you know, but to make a point, if I live in a place where case rates are one, you know, per 2000, one per 100, you know, in certain areas, versus if I live somewhere where one in every 50,000 people has HIV, it's just the laws of probability, right? Right. Like I'm more likely to come across someone who is HIV positive. So I could have unprotected sex one time in an area where HIV is not only highly concentrated in the number of individuals who are positive, but also the viral load among those individuals. Right. And that gets into access to care and medications and things for or people knowing their status. So having unprotected sex one time in that context, I could get HIV. But in the other one, somebody could have literally 20 different partners and and sleep with them unprotected a hundred times, but their likelihood of acquiring HIV is so much lower because so few people, right, in their um, in their vicinity or in their area, are HIV positive. And so there are these broader social and structural influences, you know. Um, what we're exposed to on social media, um, the quality of care that we receive, you know, from different providers, structural racism, even how it plays out in the built environment and other things that shape the disproportionate numbers that we see. And, you know, really wanting to emphasize that it's not just what people are doing, but I I coined this term geo-behavioral vulnerability to HIV because it's not just what people are doing, but where they're doing it and with whom, right? Like getting into that concentration of HIV and all those things that I mentioned that drive uh, HIV being more concentrated in certain areas.
0: Fascinating. So how do we tackle that problem? How can nurses and the health profession in general, I mean, how do you do that? You can't, you're not going to move people, right? but yeah, what is the strategy?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I love um, and that, you know, helped me to land on nursing as a discipline is our emphasis on holistic care right? Where we see not only the individual as they present in front of us, but we see the community that they live in. We see the resources that they have access to. You know, we we see the families that they come from and how that shapes their health behaviors and their beliefs. We see prior experiences that they've had with the healthcare system. So if we remember the root and the core of, you know, what makes our discipline unique and how we're seeing individuals as more than their race, more than their ethnicity, more than their behaviors and their beliefs, but also these broader social and structural exposures that they have, then it helps us to tap into another key aspect of our profession, which is advocacy, right? And so for me as a nurse... Um, When I think about social justice, when I think about racial justice, I know that those things are intricately tied for health, right, and tied to people's ability to reach their full health potential. So then as nurses, that means that we're starting to do things like becoming politically involved, right, to change laws and policies and procedures that are unjust and affect health. We're becoming involved in research to either lead the studies or to um, synthesize the evidence to transform care, right, to make sure that we're appropriately screening individuals. Or if we're thinking, I'll I'll use a mental health example, a lot of our uh, our tools that we use to assess for, let's say, depression, anxiety, ADHD, you know, there's questionable cultural sensitivity for some of those instruments. We were doing a study with young people, and uh, one of the items, you know, was asking them about taking out their boat You know, and these kids are like, I've never been on a boat, like, let alone having, you know, family who owns one. So if the items, the things that we're asking people to see how they're doing with their mental health aren't even relevant, then of course they're not going to have clinically significant levels of the things that we're assessing them for. But they're still being affected. Um, And so I would say the biggest areas are advocacy, but then also like putting legs to what we do. And these things are so big and so massive, one person can't do it all. But I'm a strong believer that like if i take my piece of the pie and so for me right now my piece of the pie is using research as an advocacy tool you know and leveraging my connection to these academic institutions and and national organizations to make a difference but if we take the piece that we do and do well then we can start to chip away right at this massive thing that we need to do and so for the nurses that are on if you are interested in volunteering you know working with the grassroots organization that's already existing in a community. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. As I said, you know, when we started out, there are people who've been doing this work for decades, but they've been ignored. And so how can you come alongside of something that's already taking place? Um, Like, let's say, if we think through... Uh, mortgage redlining, right? And how we know that racial and ethnic minority individuals were blocked from being able to live in certain communities. And then now with gentrification, being displaced from the areas that they were allowed to live. Well, what can we do around, you know, real estate literacy or financial literacy or teaching, you know, people um, ways that they can stay in their homes, you know, or ways that they can get into uh, real estate investment you know and getting property so that we can change the landscape of what communities look like and with nursing being so diverse and not pigeonholed and so you know this is the only thing that you can do these are areas housing right we know that housing is tied to so many different health concerns and so how how great of an impact could we have if we brought our nursing lens to the housing world to housing practices right like i would love to see a nurse head up our housing development corporations or even you know on a national level uh, being involved in that scale. So I think that's what we could do, getting more strategic and thinking outside of the box of areas that we could lend our nursing expertise um, that are tied to health
0: do you have examples of nurses who are doing this?
1: A really key example for me of a nurse, let's say from the political side, who has become involved and is just really blazing trails. She was actually our speaker um, for our Penn nursing graduation, but Representative Lauren Underwood, you know, I think is like a really key example of how you can serve in an area that typically wouldn't be nursing, right? So like, I think sometimes we think about nurses. We consider faculty. You know, we think about hospitals. We think about nonprofit organizations. But to serve politically and then be able to make the impact that she's made on a huge scale, I think is a great example of how we can, you know, be not only actively involved but then hold offices, you know, in spaces where that nursing lens would be really pivotal and important.
0: Thank you for sharing that example. Um, it's it can be really exciting to see nurses doing and, and the nursing pr- profession being um, a lot broader in its uh, application than you know, what I imagined growing up. You were recently on a podcast where you said, I really love MAPS. Tell me about that. What, what truths do MAPS reveal in terms of health disparities? factors that determine or contribute to a person's health.
1: Yes. And I'm thinking about um, one of our fellows, Dr. Marie smith East, who also did her dissertation looking at GIS mapping and analyses. So what I love about maps, it's one thing to see numbers on a table, right? It's another to see charts and figures. But when you can look at whether it's a satellite map or, you know, whatever type of base map that you use, where you're able to see your city, your county, your state. And then draw comparisons so you can overlay things like rates of unemployment with, you know, COVID-19 cases or overlaying vacant parcels with HIV rates, like, right, which we did in one paper. It just makes the data live in a different way because it's one thing, you know, if I see a number and it says 500 people have this here and four people have it there. But when I look on a map and I can see that those two census tracts are contiguous, you know, like they are side by side. And so we're literally saying that when you cross the street, your health looks drastically different from someone who's 100 feet, you know, away from you. That then speaks to what we need to do for resource allocation. You know, it speaks to how we have to really, from even ethnographical approaches where we're like walking through communities, talking to people, collecting artifacts, like what is it that's so characteristically different about this block group, this census tract, this zip code? Code, you know, versus some other ones, and then from an assets-based perspective, not only looking at the areas that are struggling, but what about the ones where that are doing well, right? Like, what is here? Is it green space? Um, is it a healthcare center? Is it social cohesion among neighbors? You know, like what are those even maybe intangible things that are happening that we could then take and replicate in some of the areas that are struggling? And this is where nurses, you know, as we I, I like to think of us as detectives, as we try to think through. You you know, different nursing diagnoses and what's going on with people and and treating them holistically. How can we take what we do at the individual level to communities, right, as public health nurses to then say what's happening in this geographic space that we can bring our nursing lens to address? And the maps are really helpful to do that because it just helps you visualize data in a way that, you know, numbers or charts could make more challenging.
0: As we wind down this interview, I'd like to bring us back to the Minority Fellowship Program and to your role as fellow, from being fellow to now chair of the MFP ANA National Advisory Committee, um, as well as representing the uh, fellowship program on ANA's Commission on Racism. Can you tell us more about that work and what long-term impact it will have on nursing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start with the MFP. It is um, a dream come true for me, really, to have this program that literally launched my trajectory as an academic. You know, I'm a first generation college student, grew up in a single parent home. Knew that, you know, I wanted to be a nurse and wanted to go to college, but that was as far as I could see. Uh, Master's degree wasn't in the cards for me and definitely not a PhD, a postdoc, or, you know, a faculty position that would result in a full professorship with an endowed chair. So to... To be here now and know that the MFP was so instrumental in the mentorship and sponsorship that I needed, you know, I trained uh, in that under Dr. Faye Gary and the support from Miss Janet Jackson, you know, and Dr. Outlaw along the way, being so pivotal to now chair the National Advisory Committee and be able to give back by, you know, leading the initiatives for mentoring and training, working with people so that we can proactively think through, you know, what our our fellows' needs going to be, right? Right. As as society changes, what they learn needs to change. You know, as our global um, connectedness changes, the types of experiences that our fellows have need to change. And so to be able to sort of be at the helm of getting that to happen really is surreal. And again, like dream come true is the only words that come back. But it, it's I, I am so committed to giving back. So there's no way that I ha- I could have received all that I have received and continue to receive really, because it's mutually beneficial for me to serve in this capacity, but I would not have been able to get all of that without giving something back. And so to now be able to do that is amazing. And then also in serving on the ANA's new National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing has also been pivotal. So I think one of the things I love about working with that group, we're another one where, you know, our very first meeting, there were multiple people saying, this will not just be lip service. Right? like this will not just be something that we've convened to say oh look stamp a did something about racism in nursing and we um, were deliberate we have work groups where we're looking at it from the research perspective the policy education practice where we're tackling all of the ways that racism you know manifests its ugly head in nursing and plays out down to affecting patient outcomes and so being a part of this group has also been great because I've had not only the lived experience of it but also seeing how how it plays out, you know, through education, through research through practice and being among this dynamic group of individuals from all around the country, you know, all different walks of life, stellar practitioners, educators, policymakers, right, like heads of our national organizations. It's just been um, exciting. And so I'm really looking forward to one of the deliverables from our group. You know, we will have different standards, different policies and procedures to go into those areas of leadership, education, practice, policy, Uh, research so that now we have this blueprint that says this is what should be happening. You know, this is what should go on. And then this is what needs to be done if that's not the case. Because I think where historically we have fallen short, we know that racism is bad, but then we don't do anything about it. Right. Where we know, you know, that discrimination is bad, but we don't have a way to detect it and redress it. And so then coming up with a go to uh, resource guide for individuals and and not only individuals, but also systems and organizations is going to be really powerful. And so I'm excited um, and, you know, really humbled and honored to be asked to be a part of this process as we transform this discipline that's so near and dear to my heart.
0: Well, Dr. Bronner, you are most definitely a trailblazer, and it's been an honour speaking to you today. Um, after my final question is, for your advice to the current cohort of MFP fellows, how can they become trailblazers, follow in the footsteps of all the pillars, the deans of nursing, uh, especially ethnic minority nurses, uh, such that they'll improve the psychiatric and mental health of historically marginalised and disadvantaged communities?
1: Absolutely. So for um, our fellows, our alumni, and any others who are listening, one, I'm just so excited uh, to be connected with each of you. This group is absolutely amazing. And NGS, as you had alluded to before, you know, this is really like the creme de la creme, right? Like for people to get accepted into this program. So I I would encourage them to first and foremost, know that you absolutely belong. You are supposed to be here. You are needed here. You have the skills, the expertise, the passion, the drive, you know, the knowledge to do the things that you have set out to do. And so don't let anyone make you feel otherwise. And so how I talked earlier about imposter syndrome, just chuck that out the door because to have been accepted into this program, they already have the knowledge, the expertise, right? The drive, the passion, the future potential. And and not only future, a lot of our fellows are already engaged in some amazing things. They've already started, you know, blazing trails through their own organizations or through transforming care in the areas that they're connected to or the research that they're engaged with. And so I want you all to know that you belong where you are, no matter what anyone says, Um, but also know this amazing network. Network that we have, right, with our alumni and thinking about Dr. Lakeitra Josie and how she recently had our alumni network um, established where it is now its own uh, nonprofit entity. We have an amazing, dynamic, stellar group of providers, educators, you know, researchers, policymakers that you can be connected to as well so that as you are growing and transforming and, and charting your path, we can help you with that one-year, five-year, 10-year plan so that you can move forward and do the things that you need to do Uh, but know you know that we're here we're with you we support you you are absolutely amazing and just continue doing the great work that you're already doing
0: and with that inspiring note Dr. Bronner we thank you very much and good luck with all that you're doing Um, we look forward to having you perhaps again on another episode
1: yes that would be awesome and thank you so much and that does
0: it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting minority communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Minority Fellowship Program is a SAMHSA grant-funded initiative. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services, nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.